In Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And in Vine Pairs, New York City headquarters, I'm Tim McCurdy. And today, I am arriving with good news. And that is... Yep. Raise a glass, everyone. I know it's Monday morning, but feel free to crack a bottle open, uh, pop the champagne. Thrilled to announce the arrival of SD Rose Firestone Teeter. Six pounds, one ounce. Mother and baby doing very well. Uh, all of the family very thrilled. And just on behalf of myself and the people here at Vine Pair, I just want to say congratulations to them. Zach, any messages for Adam, Naomi, and Esty? <laughs> sleep up. Uh, you know, you can never get too much sleep in the first year. But no, it's it's super wonderful news. The uh, the Vine Pair family grows again. It's great. And I'm, I'm jealous. Uh, I'm sure you will get to meet Esty before I do. But uh, hopefully not too long for me either. That would be so and if i can if i can share this i i I hope he doesn't mind me sharing so adam and i were actually having dinner recently um and and we weren't anticipating or i know adam and naomi weren't anticipating that esty would arrive quite so soon but we were having dinner recently and and obviously he wanted to get back early and i'm like do you want to stop for one for for one guinness on the way home and he was like "Ah, okay we'll have one I don't know whether that might have been one of the last times he, he was out, but <laughs> if it was, I'm glad we got that Guinness in, you know? I'm glad we did. Exactly. Yeah, well, uh, well when Adam returns to the podcast in a few weeks, we'll have to ask what he's been drinking. Hopefully hopefully he had some nice champagne on ice for the arrival and uh, has had a chance to enjoy at least a few things. But on that topic, Tim, what about you? Besides the, the Guinness that you had with Adam, the Guinness you had with me yeah. on the Friday episode, thank you for sharing that. All the Guinness. What have you had lately that, uh, that's uh, been great or terrible i guess you could go that route too if you want yeah which way which way do i go with this one do i go the terrible experience nah i'll, I'll leave that to, to to the person that usually sits in the seat i'll go with a good experience <laughs> so actually we had our recent um irish whiskey roundup just in time for saint patrick's day and that was great i mentioned the red breast on on the last episode that i enjoyed drinking another category though that we're, we're going to be covering soon for our annual roundup is gin and as you know, Zach, I'm a big fan of gin. I love gin. And here's the thing. I typically like to keep it traditional, London dry, maybe with a few interesting additional botanicals. Um, I, I don't really go for the kind of new American, new Western style. But recently, and I wouldn't put this producer in the category, but last week we were actually visited in the office by um, the team from Gin Raw which is a Spanish gin. Um, it's kind of got like, it's got really interesting people behind it. You can look into it. But they, so Gin Raw, I tried for the first time last year and really liked it. Um, but we were actually the first people to get the taste of their launching three new flavored expressions. Interesting. And flavored gin for me is kind of like well that's a redundant word because it's you know like botanicals it already has them those are the flavors but this this product is uh well the three products they're kind of placing certain hero botanicals front and center they have an orange blossom one um a sakura you know cherry and then also lavender and that was really wonderful and you know these were flavored gins but no added colorings, no sweetness. They did actually come down. At, they did actually come in at thirty-seven point five ABV, so they're not technically real gin, um, okay. or not in the TTB's eyes. 
But yeah, I just wanted to shout that out because we had a really wonderful visit from them and we were making, you know, we were doing different cocktails with it. And I know all the staff really liked it too. So that's something that stood out for me. Well, I'm curious really quick, Tim, uh, just to ask a question about these. So what do you see being the like either better application for these uh, flavored gins or or like how how do you see people using them? Like, do you think people are looking at this as a as a cocktail base for a, a standard the sort of standard gin cocktails that they're used to making or, or, or what, like how, how do they kind of envision these being used? Well, you know, purely in the spirit of experimentation and doing the legwork, I I tried them in a number of cocktails, you know, just to make sure, just to, in anticipation of this question, um, we did try the lavender expression in a dry martini and that was delicious. We also (laughs) made some, um, Negronis with the orange blossom because the the company also produces sure. um, kind of like a Campari alternative, which is delicious too. But I feel like these, given how fresh the botanicals are or the botanicals taste in them, I'm actually not a G and T drinker. I think we may have brought this up before, but I love it. Has a, come up. Yeah, it has, hasn't it? But yeah, so just gin and sparkling water, ice, and like it sounds counterintuitive, but when as you well know like when you're adding water to a distilled spirit it actually brings out more of the the aromatics and highlights some of them so that's how i'd go brilliant summer drink cool excellent well that sounds delicious i'll have to keep an eye out for them out here in seattle and so what about yourself then what have you been enjoying this weekend um yeah anything good yeah, so I mean, this past weekend, or I guess a weekend ago, for those of you listening to this on Monday, uh, was Taste Washington, which is always a huge, uh, well, traditionally huge wine event in uh, in Seattle for the Washington wine industry. It was actually the first proper Taste Washington since 2019, as uh, it happens in mid to late March, and you can imagine what happened in 2020. Uh, they did, of course, 2021 uh, and 22 decided not to hold it as well. So this was kind of back to business as usual, which was a lot of fun um, chance to try. I mean, I had tons of wines. It was actually really fun. A couple of winemakers in Washington who are listeners to the podcast had reached out and asked me to stop by. So it was really cool to to talk to some of you all. Uh, it's always nice to hear from from the listeners in email form, podcast at vinepair.com or, you know, we've got you on social media, et cetera. It's always nice to kind of hear from everyone, uh, talk a little bit about some some of the things that, uh, you know, the things they thought we were right about, maybe a couple of things they thought we didn't get quite right. So that was interesting. Uh, too many great wines to have or that I had there to to go through. Uh, just, you know, uh, upwards of 100 uh, easily. So I, I will try not to <laughs> enumerate all of them. But a couple of other things that I had recently that were really tasty. I had a really nice Cavados, uh, not necessarily Ooh. a spirit that I drink a ton of, but I was at a friend's bar and, you know, he pulled out a bottle. He was like, yeah, you should try this. So I'm going to guess the, pr- the producer's name is uh, Roger Groult. But, you know, it's a G-R-O-U-L-T, which is not a standard French construction that I'm familiar with. But uh, it's like a 12-year-aged Cavadoso apple brandy. Really interesting, tasty. Uh, bottled, like, cask strength. So, like, 120 proof, uh, which was a little spicy for me. But wow, my friend recommended putting an ice cube in there, which I think did a nice number on it. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was good. I mean, I, there's something about these, you know, about Cavados, this sort of, like, you know, it's like, you get a lot of barrel character for something that's in there for 12 years, but the base fruit, the apples in this case do peek their way into the drink to some extent. 
it's not like a category, you know, I'm not, I'm not here being like, you know, covetous big spirit in 2023 or 24, I think will always remain very niche, but it's cool to me that people are still making it. It's nice that you can find some interesting examples here and there. And it's a fun thing to sip from time to time. I, I don't know that I would make it a, a more regular part of my rotation. Also kind of, maybe not this one, but, but other covetous that are a little more uh, affordable, a nice cocktail base sometimes to get you out of your kind of whiskey or even cognac rut kind of takes in cocktails that you would make with those in a slightly different direction. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a highlight for me. I'm not like uh, a big Covados expert, but I do enjoy it from time to time. Nice. And if we can go back to your Washington experience for a second, there's sure, something I'm please. curious about if in, if, if you were to give maybe like an elevator pitch for what's going on in the region right now, what would you say are some of the kind of like the defining themes in, in Washington wine right now and, and, and your takeaway from, from that event? That's a good question. Um, I'll try and keep it brief because yeah, that's why I went elevator. Yeah, exactly. So I think that the most exciting things that are happening are one is a lot of really interesting experimentation with sites and with varieties to some extent. So like, for example, one of the most famous regions in Washington, Red Mountain, uh, in the very eastern edge of the Yakima Valley is famous for producing mostly Cabernet Sauvignon and some other Bordeaux varieties as well as Syrah. And it sort of is set up to do so because it's this sort of standalone south facing slope at the, like I said, the eastern edge of the Yakima Valley. So it's very hot, gets a lot of sun exposure, great place to produce. And it's got this like kind of intense volcanic soil. So it's a great place to produce these kind of powerful tannic structured reds. But at the top of the, of the mountain, like on the north side, kind of over the top of the slope is this relatively new vineyard called Weather Eye uh, that's planted to mostly Rhone varieties. So Syrah, Grenache, Moved, as well as whites like Roussan and Marsan. Um, they're all like bush vines, so head trained, um, not trellis the way that a lot of other things are. And it's this almost like scrubby moonscape kind of space. It's very wind exposed. It, you know, because it's north facing, it doesn't get nearly as much sun. And the wines are just starting to come off this vineyard. You know, the last, the couple of vintages, I think 2019 was the first kind of vintage that you saw anything with. Uh, I think 19 with any kind of commercial volume. And so 2020s, 2021 starting to head their way onto the market, um, you know, 22s, I guess, for some whites. And it's just really exciting. And it's a kind of a microcosm of what's going on in Washington. So these uh, identifying these places that are not yet planted that might be suited for other kinds of varieties. And frankly, that are perhaps more resilient to rising temperatures as everyone is facing. So that's one piece of it. And like I said, just a little microcosm. I think the other thing that's really interesting and exciting about what's going on is I think Washington as an industry as a whole has at times suffered from not having a like peg, you know, to put it in yeah. journalism terms yeah. for the industry, right? The reason you have to ask me this question is if I had just told you I'd come back from a big tasting in the Willamette Valley, you would have known exactly what I was tasting, right? Pinot Noir mm -hmm. mostly. If I had said I was in Napa, you'd have a pretty good idea for what I was tasting. And Washington doesn't have a signature variety that's been a topic of conversation around the wine industry for a long time. You know, there have been efforts in the past to make it into, you know, to, to find a signature variety. But the truth is that the the viticultural possibilities in Washington are both vast, but also the state as a whole has so many different kinds of growing areas that it's hard to say, you know, besides Cabernet Sauvignon, which is a tough, you know, it's kind of tough ground to fight on in mm -hmm. the global marketplace because it's so saturated. And so I think you've seen a lot of people, you know, there's still lots of cab out there for sure. <laughs> but like, there's been a lot of growth in sparkling wine in Washington, uh, a category that frankly, 
potent, practically didn't exist 10 years ago with one notable exception. And, you know, you're seeing people getting really excited about making, you know, these, these Rhone varieties, Spanish varieties, all these kinds of things. So, you know, it's, it's not just about specific vineyards, but it's really about kind of rethinking how the industry in Washington thinks about itself, talks about itself and, and sort of the, the way it, carries itself forward is is like okay you know yeah we're not going to ever be able to kind of find one expression one variety that is our you know kind of standard bearer for the mm-hmm. for the region but we're just going to put all this stuff in the market in various ways obviously much more here in Washington than other places and hope that as the wine market globally maybe moves a little bit away from being purely cab centric that will be a benefit to us not a detriment nice Nice, long elevator ride, Zach. But but you know I maybe know. that was the no. that was the Empire State. No, but I think great points there, and and you know really exciting to hear what's going on in Washington. And um, it's funny you mentioned about that kind of like the signature hero variety. I'm pretty sure you guys have spoken about that on the pod before, and I've actually even written an article about that for Vine Pair a couple of years ago now. But you can search that out. Just this, you know, signature variety is it a help or a hindrance for a region? Yep. It's up in the air. But really fascinating topic. For sure, for sure, yeah. And I'm sure we'll revisit it on the podcast again before uh, too much longer. So anyhow, but l- let's get into the topic for today, which is, I mean, we couldn't have picked something nearer and dearer to your heart for these first two episodes than Guinness and the Martini. <laughs> um, it, we're giving you a soft landing, Tim. We'll, we'll, we'll get into the we'll get into the hard seltzer talk next uh, next episode, maybe. But uh, no, what, you you had this really fascinating idea. You brought up this sort of inflection point let's put it that way so so why don't you kind of take the listeners through this experience you had and and kind of what it made you think fantastic thank you very much for the floor here because you know what Zach this is a topic that I wanted to write about um and since moving from being the senior staff writer at Vinepair to the managing editor I don't get as many opportunities to pen things as I would like and I got a take for us today and yeah, I don't think, yep, I don't think that anyone else out there is saying it. So, you know, mark your watches. I don't know. Make a note, folks. We're saying it here first on the Vine Pair podcast. I think we've reached peak martini. Ooh. Yep. Spicy. And I think that the only way is downhill from here. And, you know, you're talking about, I'm a person here that this is my favorite drink. Uh, you know, I've never been, you know, you know that's never been in question. <laughs> so, and I think as we came out of the pandemic, one thing we saw was like, and, and we predicted here at Vinepair too, that we would see this return to the classics because a mixture of people bartending at home and then wanting to go back and, and getting the real bartender version of those drinks they've been perfecting, including the martini, um, and then just nostalgia, whatnot, but... I was very, very excited for this martini moment to happen. It wasn't like, oh, this is the band that I've loved for ages and now they're big and now I hate them. Like, I'm like, this is cool. <laughs> yeah. But then since then, we've started to see some, frankly, terrible crimes made against the martini happen in recent times. But I wanted to share a personal anecdote first which was the moment and the day that I think we reached the peak and the downhill started. And so this was two weeks ago. And, you know, I truly believe that one of the most 
tired tropes of uh, kind of drinks media journalists out there is going to social media to complain about um, bad pitches from publicists. I mean, I just don't like that. But the second most tired trope is talking about events that you went to as media and that the general public couldn't go to. So I apologize in advance because we're about to do that. But a couple of weeks ago, I was at an event for the launch of uh, Music to Drink Martinis 2, which is a record which has been produced in collaboration with Ford's Gin. And Ford's had flown in Agostino Peroni, who's, I hope I pronounced that correct, who is the head bartender or runs the bar program at the Connaught in London. Very, very famous for their martinis. Okay. Now, in another part of the city during that day, I actually couldn't find the uh, listing for this on the internet, but one of the other writers who was there and who I trust was telling me that Salvatore Calabresi, who invented the Duke's Martini in London, another icon, was in town doing a pop-up in Dante. And so you have this incredible martini moment going on in New York and probably around the country. I don't want to speak for the rest of the country. And then you have two of the most notable figures for martinis possibly in the world in the same city at the same time doing martini stuff. And I'm like, this is it. This is the (laughs) zenith. It's all downhill from here. And unfortunately, we're starting to see the downhill. What does that downhill look like? Can you can you give me some examples? Absolutely. So you can go out there, listener and uh, listeners, and 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 research this. You know, I don't want to call out specific bars because I I you know I like experimentation. This is just a matter of personal taste. But the martini riffs have gone too far. So it started with one bar here doing the MSG martini, which. I personally think is a fine drink, but then we saw a bar doing the dirty pasta water martini, which mm-hmm. no comment needed. <laughs> Finally, we saw a bar infusing their gin with smoked salmon for their martini. I just, I, I don't need that. What's your take there, Zach? What do you think about these these riffs? Is that am I picking nits here, or is that that's too far? Well, I think it's it's interesting to me because a thing that got brought up has been brought up a few times in this sort of martini renaissance is what happened to the martini last time around, which was the you know sort of uh, co opting of the like, it's not even a suffix, but it got used as the suffix team, <laughs> or basically any drink that was served in a you know, in a vertical glass, you know, in a V or whatever, it didn't matter what was in it, didn't matter what it tasted like, didn't matter if it had, you know, any of the constituent parts of a classic martini in it, it was just uh, something teeny. And that lives on in the espresso martini, which is not a martini, but is a delicious cocktail, nonetheless. And there's the problem of anything, right, where popularity breeds both um, imitation, but also as I think we've seen in the cocktail culture more recently, not just innovation, but a sort of frenetic, almost um, out of control pace of iteration. And I think this is an area where the modern drinks landscape uh, really, unfortunately, kind of suffers because, you know, not to put on my old man hat, although (laughs) I will, 
20 years ago, almost when I got into the uh, bar industry, it took a long time for trends to dissipate or not to dissipate. I'm sorry, to sort of disperse throughout the drinks world. Someone invented a cocktail or even something got trendy and ingredient. And it, there were the way it made its way from wherever that started getting popular, New York, London, San Francisco, et cetera, to other markets, other countries was a, sometimes a years long process, right? It had to hit, you know, maybe there was a little bit of an, of a underground network of bartenders who knew each other, but you know, it needed to hit big drinks conventions. It had to hit the drinks publications that existed at the time and get sort of disseminated outwards in a pre-social media era. And now a drink can go from invention in wherever it's invented to trending on social media to a you know, a hundred bars around the world in what, a week, 10 days, two weeks. And what that means is that everyone is looking for something that will be trendy. And so you take something like the martini, which as a whole is having a moment, obviously. And then someone says, okay, well, what can we do? Right? Well, let's put MSG in there. Let's put pasta water in there, which apparently is having a moment. Tim, <laughs> you as a former chef, this, I, I we're not going to have a long, dis- like, uh, uh, sideline on pasta water as a thing that people are purchasing but like what the fuck is wrong with people like <laughs> you don't you, you you can make pasta water at home it's called making pasta it's not like it's not a hard thing to come up with uh god anyhow sorry but i enjoyed that you know yeah thank you uh you know whatever you're you're smoked salmon infused whatever right like it is about Maybe in some of these cases, it's about, and you said the MSG martini is good. I don't find that shocking. Like, you know, umami is a tasty flavor to people, Mm -hmm. me included. But the whole thing seems like, you know, you're trying to get attention. You're trying to get, you know, trying to trend. And what the drink, I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before in ways, like what the drink looks like or how it carries on social media has become perhaps more important than how it tastes. But I think now it's like, well, if you can also piggyback that on the martini trend, you've got yourself a selling point that's not just going to make it perhaps appealing on social media, but is going to get you, you know, earned media, whether it's, you know, maybe on this podcast, as it turns out, or just, you know, in the various publications that either specifically focus on the drinks industry, or will just be like, oh, my God, look at this. It's a you thought the martini craze had gone too far. Now look at this thing. Um, And that is, you know, that's a lure that for bars for for a certain kind of business is hard to avoid or hard to it's hard to resist yeah definitely and i think that 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 really does a good job of leading into another thought that i had here too which is that i'm actually quite conflicted about whether or not i want to see a martini on a bar's menu because Mm -hmm. the martini is such a personal drink if you're ordering one chances are you know how you like your martini And therefore, you should be pointing the bartender in the right direction. Yeah, you maybe you say, you know, I want it dry, but I do want vermouth in there, you know, but I I want it on the drier side. And and they will get from that, they will know where to go. So, yes, I get that putting a martini on a menu is kind of planting your flag in the ground and saying, this is how we do it here. This is the version that we stand behind. But as a martini drinker and lover even if you do have your martini on the menu and even if it's a classic like martini, not one of these weird riffs, I'm still going to ask for mine ordered the way that I Mm -hmm. want it. Yeah. 
And then when you get into riff territory, because the martini is more of a, a category of cocktails than, than one recognized recipe, then the riffs don't resemble the drink itself in any way. They're, again, we're getting back to the 80s here where we're basically just profiting off of the name and fame of the martini. And I don't know. I I don't like that. That to me they're not martinis, and 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 you know we saw what happened last time around. Um, yeah. How do you feel about that menu question, though? Do you uh, before I actually before you answer, I will say there's one exception. Maison Premier. It's not the only one, but Maison Premier here in New York, they have a stirred tableside martini, which is made in a very elaborate and nice way, but it is true to the soul of the drink. Yes, I want to see that kind of martini on a menu. But otherwise, not for me. How about you? Yeah, or like Adam has talked about the Hawksmore martini, which kind yeah. of has to be a menu item because it's you know made ahead of time and kept incredibly cold to Good allow point. you to yeah. have it cold. So I think I think I will say two things. I would say one that I think there are places for a on the cocktail menu martini or you know even a Manhattan or other drinks that kind of I mean even Manhattan's maybe the wrong comparison because it has a little more of a prescribed. recipe than uh, a martini would but i think this is where you get a little bit of the conflict between someone like you a dyed in the wool martini lover who regardless of the trendiness of the drink will always drink it and people who are interested in martinis maybe because you know it's for them prior to this kind of current martini renaissance thought of it as like a drink that like just had gone out of fashion, right? It was a drink that it was the, you know, James Bond drank it a long time ago and it was like cold vodka in a, you know, served up or whatever. And they might be prompted to reconsider the cocktail or give it a try when it's on a menu because it prompts them. And maybe they think, oh, this is interesting. Like this bar has a specific formulation that they think is great and I'm interested to try it. And I maybe haven't drank a martini in two years. I know, right? It seems like a fate worse than death, but like <laughs> those people do exist, Tim, I assure you. Um, and I think that for those, for people like that, who are open to the experimentation, having it on a menu can be interesting. You know, restaurants, I've bars I've worked in, we've often had a martini on the menu and our approach to it was kind of this, right? It was like, we wanted to have a way for someone who maybe liked the martini, but wasn't as they, for them, it was something they had like a person who drinks mar- martinis regularly, like you, almost certainly has your preferred f- format, right? You have yeah. your preferred gin, you have your preferred amount of vermouth, your preferred garnish, and you're going to come into a bar. And if that's the drink you want, you're going to say, here's what I want. And the bartender should be able to just be like, as long as they have the gin or whatever, they should be able to make it for you. No problem. And then there's another category of people who like martinis, but they're not as much of a regular part of their drinking um, you know, regimen, whatever. And they may not be 100% sure what they like. So having something on the menu that's within the sort of parameters of a classic martini gives them a way to say like, ah, a martini sounds good, but I'm not sure what my gin preference is. And I don't remember if I like an eight to one or a four to one martini. And, you know, I don't, maybe I prefer olives or a twist. Maybe I know that, but like, it just gives them a way to order the drink with confidence without feeling like they have to have a recipe memorized. And again, to you and me, it's like, well, how would you not possibly know your preferred martini order? But I think those people are out there and those are a lot of the part of the who's being served by those drinks. But I think sure. that there is that, but that when you step out meaningfully outside of the classic formulation, even if there isn't a specific ratio that is truly classic, 
it is where you get into trouble, not so much because the drinks themselves might be bad. I mean, again, I think I remain open to the idea that many of these martini riffs might be tasty cocktails. I don't think they're inherently bad, but that they stray away from what people's expectations might be in hard to anticipate ways. Like I can imagine the smoked salmon infused martini, if it's a, a faint salmon kind of flavor, salmon works great with gin sounds yeah. good to me yeah the msg one again again not going for the pasta water uh i don't feel like you know it's not like when i finish making pasta i immediately like let me pour myself a glass of this remaining liquid <laughs> but you know whatever that's fine people can do that if that's your your thing so to me it's more about not confusing people not misleading them and and setting expectations properly which is a, a challenge for any bar that they have to kind of meet And especially with a drink as famous and as iconic as the martini, you know, it's important that the drink you put on your list as your martini, you know, hit the notes that we expect a martini to hit, however you get there. Yeah. 100%. And I think you've actually done a very good job of talking me off the ledge there with with regard to my take about having the drink on the menu. I think, yes, there are people like yourself and myself who have their spec dialed in or their idea of what they want the martini to taste like. But if you don't, then it's a very intimidating drink to order. And, you know, because then you it's one of the only drinks that when you order it, you will receive questions about how you want it made. Like most cocktails, they're not going to ask you. You want an old fashioned? Great. Amazing. Coming right up. Manhattan. Same deal. Martini. Oh, vodka or gin. Shaken or stirred. Wet or dry. So, yeah. And that is intimidating. So how do people get into them? What? They need a friend like you or I to make one. So I think that is good. I think when it comes to these riffs, though. My question is, would these bars have invented these drinks were it not for the martini moment that we're having now? Or are they being purely fueled? You know, a less skeptical take is that they're building off of the of the popularity of the drink at the moment. And an even more skeptical take is they're making these drinks to get media coverage, which um, they're kind of getting right now, but <laughs> maybe not in the, in the light that they would want. So... Yeah. That's my question there. And again, I also think to your point too, if the drink does resemble a classic martini, but maybe you change just one element. Yeah, that's good. I'm happy with that going on the menu. And chances are, I'll try it. Yeah. It won't be the first one I have, but I'll I'll try it (laughs) while I'm at your bar. So I think that the answer to your question is, is twofold. One is to some extent, most cocktail bars should be and are responsive to trends, right? You you shouldn't write your cocktail list completely ignorant of what people are going to come in looking for. So in the same way that a few years ago, not having something analogous to a Negroni on your cocktail list was probably a bad idea, even if people could come in and call a Negroni and probably did, like, you know, it's going to be on people's minds and people like walking into bars and feeling like they have some you know, like they look at a list and they go, oh, okay, I can I can categorize this drink. I know what this is going to be. I have a sense for what this drink is going to be like, whether or not they order it, right? It gives them comfort and familiarity. If you have nothing but unusual, I mean, a individual bar could maybe succeed doing this kind of thing, but bars writ large can't put make their customers completely uncomfortable with what their drinks are. So that's one part of it is like, I think it's important that bars do be aware of trends and do put things that are going to be top of mind for cocktail drinkers on their lists with your own take on it generally. 
I do think that there is obviously some playing to whether it's to media, to social media, something that's going on with some of these drinks, right? In the same way that people put you know ridiculous Bloody Mary garnishes out there because they know it's going to get attention. Whether or not any of this, whether or not the cheeseburger that's garnishing your Bloody Mary is any good, mm-hmm. that's not really the point, right? It's it's there so that it'll end up on social media, it'll end up in you know your various kind of publications that focus on that kind of stuff. And it's there so that people will order it when they come in. And and if they never eat the cheeseburger, you know, that's not really the point, generally, I don't think. Yeah. Well, the last thing I was going to say about this, though, is that I also think that that you mentioned this, and I think we both mentioned it, but I want to reiterate it, that the martini is a, is a drink that comes with a lot of anxiety for people in some cases. And it's like... It's not a beginner's cocktail, right? It is. It is a. It is not a generally a very accommodating cocktail to new drinking palates because it's very typically quite spirit forward. And even when it's not super spirit forward, it's then got a fair bit of verm- dry vermouth in it generally, which is also not always super approachable to newer drinkers. And it's possible that some of these, you know, martini riffs, maybe not the truly goofy ones, but some of the ones that take the drink in a slightly different direction, embolden people to then check out classic martinis over time that a slightly more palatable martini or a slightly easier to access martini might turn someone over time into a someone who's like you know i i started out with you know these uh the msg martini or whatever but i found that what i my true love is a classic martini i don't know that that happens en masse but i think it does happen yeah definitely i yeah i think that's a good point and you're right. This is this is a tough drink to get into. I do think, though, to, to one of our earlier points, I do think that what we're seeing now will be the equivalent of we'll be looking back at some of these and scratching our heads in a couple of years time and being like, really, we were we were infusing gin with with salmon. Is that where we went now? Tim, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> I don't think I can follow that up. Appreciate you stepping in again. Uh, I think you'll be with us for at least in a few more episodes while uh, Adam et al. adjust to life with you know with one more in the house. Uh, so again, thank you so much. If you folks have uh, comments, questions, other hideous martini riffs that you've come across, please podcast at vimepair.com. Love to hear from you all. And uh, Tim, I will talk to you on Friday. Thank you very much, Zach. And, and I just want to say thank you. Appreciate the two softballs there as I stepped up to the plate now. And I, I'm expecting the, the change up when I come, out, come back next Friday. So I'll be waiting for it. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So... The Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.